So this podcast is designed to give you a background on anxiety and anxiety disorders and it's to be used in conjunction with the workshop where we talk about the practical skills of managing anxiety in general practice. And so I'm Monica Moore and I'm a GP with a special interest in mental health and I have Dr Martina Gleeson with me who also is a GP with a special interest in mental health. Um, and so I thought we'd start talking about um, what anxiety is and how it presents in our practice. And so Martina, how does, you know, when you're seeing someone, how do you know someone has anxiety? Um, well, sometimes they'll tell you that they're feeling worried or anxious about a certain situation. And sometimes that might be realistic anxiety because the situation is making them worried. Um, sometimes they'll present with physical symptoms that they're they don't realise are more reflecting a high adrenaline state because they're sort of more focused on the physical. So some people come in focused on their psychological experience and some people coming in focused on their physical experience and but it can still be a presentation of anxiety. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, do you have any examples of people who come in um, and they might have a physical experience but they don't realise that it's actually an appropriate response to what's happening to you? Yeah, it could be someone who has uh, been at work and there's been some sense of disharmony or they feel like they've been picked on by the boss or, you know, there's something not right at work. They're feeling unsafe for some feeling reason. Feeling unsafe, yeah. yeah. And, uh, but they won't initially say something, you know, work's not going so well, but what they might have had an episode where they um, had their heart racing fast and they felt unusual in the chest and they felt breathless and they might even say, I just had to get out of there, I just had to walk out. Um, but they haven't actually identified that they had to walk out because they were feeling unsafe. They've identified that they had to walk out because they were having uncomfortable physical symptoms. Mm, which I sometimes think they're having a heart attack or they're having a stroke. Yeah, that's right. Or, or even an asthma attack. Or an asthma you know? attack. Yeah. 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 And so um, that's, you know, when we're talking about um, anxiety, what we actually mean is the output of adrenaline in situations where sometimes it's completely understandable that we would be putting, you know, having a fight or flight response in, um, in that situation. But when we're talking about an anxiety disorder, we're actually talking about feeling unsafe when in fact we are safe. Mm. There's adrenaline output which is out of proportion to the current situation. And just as a bit of a background, um, if you're interested, you can look up um, Stephen Porges' polyvagal theory um, where he describes the three main areas of our limbic system, which is our middle brain, which is responsible for that whole, you know, how we survive in the world and which we share with other um, animals. And um, it, the first one is mediated through the myelinated vagus, which is our social aspect, which is where we smile, we communicate with others, we feel comfortable, we uh, engage, we approach. And so that's our social aspect of the limbic system. It helps us to survive as uh, herd animals because humans are very social. Um, and then we've got the fight or flight which is associated with action where we either run away or we stand firm, we protect our boundaries and that's mediated by adrenaline um, and 
the last one is where we freeze as a response, which again is a very helpful survival mechanism, um, and that's mediated by the unmyelinated vagus. I mean, you were talking before about a situation where someone was feeling very bad for freezing, um, but it sounds like it was a you know, absolutely normal response. Yeah, my sister-in-law's been travelling through Africa and she was in a game park where there were no cages and she realised that a hippopotamus was about to walk past and she froze and then she wondered afterwards if she maybe should have run. Um, but actually they had been advised to freeze so she did exactly the right thing. But the interesting thing was she didn't really feel she had any choice in what she did. It, was a, it wasn't a thought out response, it was a, an instant unconscious response that she could really only think about afterwards when she was in actual safety. Mm. Mm. And that's the really important thing about the limbic system. We have no control over our limbic system because it's a survival mechanism. When we are in a very altered state because our limbic system is activated in either fight, flight or freeze, we cannot do anything else except do what it tells us. And sometimes when we're working with people in our room, or even ourselves, it's important to calm down our limbic system in order to solve a problem or address an issue. We can't do anything with our uh, very big prefrontal cortex that solves problems and addresses issues until our emotions are a little bit more in, um, in control. So it's an important concept to remember that, uh, that we've got no control, but we can manage it. Like the, the actual initial response, we can't stop, but we can actually manage it and lower the levels of adrenaline and make ourselves safer in situations where in fact um, we are safe. It's interesting because sometimes that is um, more apparent with when patients behave badly in the practice. Maybe they get very demanding and a little bit abusive of the reception staff when their needs are not getting met. And whilst it's not appropriate to behave rudely, um, sometimes our staff need to understand that people aren't always their best selves that they may have trauma or something that's triggering their fight, flight or freeze response so that they're even ashamed of how they behaved but they don't feel that they have any control at the time. Uh, it's important to recognise that and to start to work with patients, people to give them some skills so that they can manage that sort of situation and recognise it. Mm, that's mm. right, yeah. And because remember, because adrenaline is both the um, anxiety, you know, feeling anxious and feeling scared, but it's also our fight response and sometimes, you know, we get very bolshy. Yeah. Um, and that's a really normal response when the adrenaline is raised. Um, and recognising that sometimes we just have to create a sense of safety. We have to ask, why is this person feeling unsafe or why am I feeling unsafe? And address that, mm. even though it may not, in fact, be something that you understand because it's all got to do with perspective and how that person is seeing it. Mm. And, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, you know, when adrenaline is really useful. So um, that fight, uh, the freeze response when the hippopotamus came along, mm. man, is that useful. But are there other situations when we feel anxious and it's actually a really helpful response that we, you know, to realise we're feeling anxious? Well, if you're sitting an exam, um, the adrenaline can help you sharpen your reflexes and your ability to focus. Uh, if you're, I do a fair amount of public speaking and if I don't feel just a little bit anxious before the speaking, 
then I don't perform as well. That little bit of anxiety helps me put more effort into being prepared and um, helps me be a bit sharper in my um, ability to interact with the audience, which you know makes the experience better for the people on the receiving end of what I've got to say. Um, is that the sort of thing you meant? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think also sometimes, you know, when people come in and they say, I'm, I'm feeling anxious about my, my diabetes, you know, I don't know, I haven't been managing it very well and, you know, I'm just feeling anxious that, you know, it's going to cause problems. And sometimes that can, you know, as you discuss it with them, that anxiety can be something that they connect with a motivation to yep. do something different mm -hmm. in their and lives. It can help them reframe it and recognise, okay, there's maybe this anxiety is a sign that something needs to change mm -hmm. and um, and use that as a motivation to look at what it really is that they need to change yeah. um, and take action. It helps it because it helps um, you take action. That's yeah. right. That's right. And so I wanted to talk a bit about how the psychologists recognise anxiety because they classify it in sort of different types. And it is helpful sometimes to say to someone, yes, you know, this is an example of this particular type of anxiety. But occasionally patients will come in telling you they've got a particular type of anxiety. And one of the things we as clinicians have to be aware of is not to buy into the idea that it's, um, you know, like multiple sclerosis and hardwired and there's nothing you can do about it. We have to maintain a certain degree of understanding and hope that in fact it's just a tendency. It's like having a fair skin and being able to get sunburnt. And so in the same way that you can wear a hat, cover up and wear sunscreen, then you can also manage the symptoms of anxiety. Um, and so I wanted to start by um, just saying that, you know, the, the anxiety is a little bit, the way it's classified, it's like the different types of cough, you know, a chesty cough or a, or a dry cough or a tickly cough. Um, so one of the types of anxiety that we see really commonly in general practice is when people have generalised anxiety disorder because um, it will often be this sort of constant low-level adrenaline release and they'll worry. And because they're releasing adrenaline in a constant low rate, they'll have lots of physical symptoms and occasionally people can present um, as you know what we used to call the frequent flyers people coming all the time for symptoms which we identify as not really life-threatening or associated with any major disease complex but that really concern them and so health anxiety is a form of generalised anxiety disorder that's really common in general practice because people find it difficult to understand that it's actually mediated through their limbic system. They really believe that there's something physically wrong with them. Yeah, it's very hard for some people to accept sometimes that it is their adrenaline from their generalised anxiety that is causing the symptoms. And, and, you know, like the typical adrenaline symptoms like the fast heart rate, um, the sensation of shortness of breath, uh, increased sweating, flushes. Um, it, they're actually reasonably easy for a GP to recognise that they may be from um, constant anxiety. I've got a patient at the moment who is presenting with um, obsessive thoughts about her memory not being good because she can't remember things. And 
but it's because she's got generalised anxiety. And she's got a lot of reasons, a lot of real reasons to be worried about her health, but I sort of explain that to her as like the RAM in her computer system is full with all the worries, and so it's harder for her to mem remember little things that are fairly routine and not out of the ordinary because her RAM's full. There's no room for those other things that they, she then worries about when she can't remember. That's right, because you remember, you know, when the limbic system is activated, the cortex is completely offline. Yeah. Sometimes we can't even talk when our limbic system is activated. And so um, that's something really important to help patients to understand and to understand ourselves. Um, and so that's generalised anxiety disorder. And panic disorder is more where people have these really unexplained huge surges, or unexplained to them, huge surges of adrenaline, and they fear the recurrence. And so they start to change um, their behaviours and, and what they do with their lives in order not to get another experience of really high adrenaline because it's so distressing. It's really important to help people realise that it's not that crowded shopping centre that's um, the cause of their panic. It's not a phobia of shopping centres because, um, you know, they might have their first attack when they're, they're in a crowded place and they can't escape. So then they, they, they say they have agoraphobia because all claustrophobia can't be in confined spaces, but more it's actually they're frightened of having a panic attack, so they're going to avoid places where they've previously had that experience. Mm. But sadly that means their life gets smaller and smaller sometimes. Yeah, that's right. As they avoid more and more things. That's right. Mm. And of course all of us have some degree of, you know, adrenaline that's a little bit out of proportion to the situation, um, but it doesn't cause us any problems. So, for example, if you have a fear of uh, caves and you never go caving, it's never going to be an issue for you. If you have a fear of flying but you don't have to fly anywhere, again, you don't have to do anything about it. But if you suddenly decide you want to go overseas, that's when you need to address it. Mm. Um, and then there are the, the slightly more distressing and debilitating uh, types of anxieties um, which can take more intensive treatment and these are the social anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder and each of them is a slightly different flavour, a slightly different type of anxiety. And, uh, and with social anxiety it's essentially related to the thought and the fear of being socially embarrassed but it's out of proportion to um, how severe that the consequences of embarrassment would be but it does lead to a lot of uh, very disruptive behaviours um, where people avoid being in social situations and sometimes will even avoid going to job interviews and so never have a job because they can't face that situation of being um, in a social situation. Some people with social anxiety disorder won't even go to a therapist. Yeah, that's right. Because they're worried right. about being judged. Judged, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. And so as GPs, we're in a wonderful position of gaining their trust and helping them to understand what's going on. And they can sometimes benefit from the online treatments initially um, so that they can understand more about their disorder and start to challenge them a little bit, mm. their behaviours. And obsessive-compulsive disorder is, is having these recurrent, very vivid obsessions, which are the thoughts which cause a release of adrenaline. Mm. And then the way that you manage that um, is to develop these behaviours that then become a problem, such as hand washing or checking um, or cleaning or, uh, you know, having certain rituals. So obsessive compulsive disorder, you have to address 
the, the actual behaviour you have to do response prevention and we'll be talking about that in the workshop of how to address that. It's interesting because some people with um, obsessive compulsive disorder also have this kind of belief that there's something really seriously wrong with them mm -hmm. and it can convert itself into even starting to believe quite distressing things about themselves like maybe they're a pedophile or you know that they're a very bad person and and those people can be actually quite challenging to work with at times because mm. uh, you've got to address where that is coming from yep yeah and and the you know bringing up the last diagnosis that psychologists talk about in terms of trauma in terms of anxiety which is the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder um, if you've had some really challenging things happen when you were growing up where um, your interactions with your caregivers resulted in a sense of not being able to function well in the world and not being able to relate and feel safe to other human beings and uh, or you might have had like really traumatic things happen in your childhood that changes the way your brain is wired um, and so that can actually result in both effects on your body um, because the limbic system is really highly activated all the time um, and it can also result in sort of how you do your interactions you find it difficult to communicate um, and you don't understand what people's um, communication is towards you like you misread and and uh, not don't take their cues as they actually are in reality so with PTSD the treatments are actually quite complex and so they're quite specialized um, but the adrenaline surges are usually triggered by the event uh, you know usually an event or a series of events where you were, your life was threatened and it was just so awful and you froze and you just feel completely overwhelmed so that can happen with people that have had adult traumatic experiences as well. Absolutely, yeah. And and I find it interesting that some sometimes it's a thought that triggers that is similar to the experience, the original trauma experience. But sometimes it's a sensory input. So it can be quite surprising what can trigger someone. It could be a smell. Mm. It could be a sound. Mm. Um, it could be a sensation. Yep. Um, so we need to be aware of that. Yeah. Mm. And just tell them that they're not going crazy, they're not going mad, but it's just something that happens because our brains are designed to keep us safe. And everything that happens to us, then we, you know, store that in our memory systems as like, okay, so this is to be avoided and that's, you know, that's what I need to do and all that. But in trauma, um, we can't actually process it. We can't actually make sense of it. It's just so overwhelming. And so we keep getting, you know, your brain is sort of on this continuous loop of trying to get out of it, but it can't. And so that's why the specialised treatments are required mm. so that people can process their trauma. And it's a little bit unrealistic because what you're saying is if, if the cortex is offline, it's a bit unrealistic for us to expect people to just use the cognitive therapy that we might have given them and get their cortex to be doing some work for them to question, um, you know, is this a realistic thought? So sometimes you can be working with a person and wonder why you're... you're stinking thinking exercises are not working with them and it might just be that when they are in their re-experience of trauma phase their cortex is offline and they can't use those advanced skills that we've been working on treating them and that's as you say that's when you need the specialised um, 
kind of like rewiring the brain services mm -hmm. to help right. them manage that sort and of thing. And in fact, all the things that we do with anxiety is about rewiring the brain because mm. whenever we learn a new technique of managing a particular situation, we are changing the brain wiring. That's the concept of neuroplasticity. That's why counselling works. Mm. And so I, I wanted to also talk about the fact that it's not just about the symptoms of adrenaline, but about the behaviours that we then develop thinking that we're keeping ourselves safe. So we tend to avoid things mm. and mm -hmm. so we end up with you know this sort of restricted life um, and we don't solve the real problems because we don't realize what they are we think the adrenaline is the problem and we don't develop a realistic sense of, of ourself in the world because we're not actually reading situations correctly um, and the other thing that it's important to remember about adrenaline disorders is that sometimes we develop some really unhelpful coping strategies that have to do with addictions and then we need to address the addiction as well as the anxiety disorder. And it's not just substance addiction that you'd be talking about there. It might be that somebody self-soothes by doing online shopping or um, just checking out and watching TV or just doing things that take them away from the unpleasant physical experiences and mental experiences that they're having. And so as an overall view of the treatments, which we'll go into more detail in the workshop, um, we really need to convey to patients and remember that emotions are information. They're information about what is safe, what is unsafe and what's happening in the world. And so it's like the car dashboard, you know, you've got your light for your petrol and you've got your light for your brakes and fluid and all of this sort of stuff and so if we ignore our emotions which sometimes we learn how to do as a coping mechanism then we're not actually going through life in the best way possible mm. and the aim is to create enough skills that we can feel safe when we, in fact we are safe. Yeah, and, and feel unsafe when you are unsafe because sometimes those emotions you're having in an experience are actually telling you something about the situation you're in and you need to learn from, um, from that. You need to be able to step back and think it through and go, why was I, why did I flare up into that sense of unsafeness? What was it about the situation that was unsafe? and that might help you work out how to approach a situation in a way to problem solve it um, rather than just thinking that you are nuts or... <laughs> That's exactly right. And so, you know, the more we learn to manage our adrenaline and to understand where it's coming from, then, you know, we can think more clearly, we can solve our problems, we can make better decisions. And that's really what the whole aim of anxiety management is, mm -hmm. um, is to help us to have better quality lives. Mm -hmm. And so we'll be talking about exactly how to do that in the workshop. Sounds good. Okay, see you then.